gather up the brokenness and bring it to me now. So again, our monthly theme for April is wholeness. And hopefully, as with all our themes, wholeness encompasses many things and meanings. It comes in part, of course, from our human experience of feeling at times isolated, alone, or broken. The simple fact that we see out of our own eyes, our own head, experience only our own bodies and brains, means that our perspective is at best unique, at worst, alone in the universe. All of us, regardless of circumstance, have felt distant or removed from others at times, or have had our hopes so dashed as to make us question our understanding of the future and present, to question our very identity and our connection with others and the world. It has been said that we enter this world alone and leave it alone. It is the time in between where we find connection. And so we are here all in that glorious time in between. So who here has felt like the crayon named Red in our story this morning? Have we not all at some point been asked to be or do something we're not? Pressured into liking a particular type of music, watching a certain movie, or being friends with someone we didn't like because it was what was expected of us? Doing something in our job, for our school, serving our country or our people that gave us pause or simply gave us that pit of the stomach feeling that something isn't quite right. Have we not all at some times in our lives assumed identities that were foreign to us or simply wrong for describing who we are? As a child of pretty immense privilege myself and someone who can, if I want to, look very much like the all-American white guy affectionately known by some marginalized communities as the man, I have at times in my life tried to break from convention so as not to be immediately identified as someone with a particular set of values or a particular perspective. In short, I grow tired of old white guys at the gym or elsewhere assuming I'm interested in their racist and sexist jokes or identify with a particular brand of politics that means political correctness has gone just a little too far. But in truth, my privilege has allowed me, for the most part, to avoid feeling much like our friend Red, ticking most of the boxes of the dominant read dominating class, I've been able not to worry about being judged by how I am perceived the vast majority of the time. But there are many, if not most, among us who do not have such privilege. When we are forced to put on a different face, a different identity, to deny some part of ourselves, we become incredibly vulnerable. One of the surefire ways to create a sense of isolation is to deny one's true self. It has been scientifically documented that those living in secret, 
those denying their race, their gender, their sexuality, their religion, those living in secret harbor more anxiety, have more stress, have a much higher likelihood of early death due to myriad stress or behavioral-related issues. Closeted gay people are much more likely to suffer ulcers, depression, heart disease, and other stress and behavior-related illnesses than openly gay individuals. Likewise, any person who does not confront and accept publicly their myriad identities is subject to the same potential physiological problems to say nothing of the havoc denying identity can wreak on our relationships and social standing. But there's even another problem, again related to wholeness, that we encounter when through choice or circumstance we deny ourselves. The more we shut ourselves off from who we are, be that gay, straight, black, white, privileged or not, the more we are shut off from the folks around us. How is it possible to have a conversation, by which I mean a meaningful dialogue, where change is not only possible, but expected, if we know not our own selves? How can we possibly hear another's truth if we are not in tune with our own? Well, we've had some important and influential folks in our lineage who've tried to help us along this path. Unitarian Transcendentalist Walt Whitman said, I contain multitudes, expressing the extent of his being as often conflicting, always diverse components of who he was. Our own former minister, Florence Bach, implored us that even when we cannot change the inevitable, the inevitable need not change us. All of our spiritual ancestors, indeed, the whole of our Unitarian and Universalist liberal religious lineage has urged us to know ourselves and know others because it is only through this dialogue, this exchange of ideas and experiences between and among people that growth can occur. Shakespeare's Polonius tells his young adult son, this above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. He's telling his son Laertes to embrace his own truth, and in so doing come to know honesty with others. But this, as we know, can at times be much harder than it seems. We face immense social, societal, legal pressures to fall in line, act our age, participate only in those activities appropriate for someone of our perceived identity. Much like our friend Red, often these pressures are reinforced by those who love us the most our family and friends who only want us to be comfortable, to fit in, to be accepted and acceptable. They offer help, encouragement, try harder, work more, you'll catch on. They offer hope that we may grow out of it or that certain identities may be written off as simply a phase. But what these well-meaning friends and family are really doing 
is making it that much more difficult for an individual to really know themselves, really come to understand the multitudes of their existence and their identity. And again, this is a lesson from our faith tradition that the truth is only attained through tolerance and dialogue and that the more we come to know the people around us, the more we come to know ourselves. We have long believed that one of the most effective ways to come to terms with who we are is to get to know others, even and especially those with identities, experiences, and beliefs that are different from our own. For many populations, this means engaging with the dominant culture, defining ourselves against that which we reject. And we've done this a number of times in our history. We are not Trinitarian. We are not Christian. We are not heteronormative. We are not fascist. But for others, especially those of us with several privileged identities, it means actively seeking out perspectives from the marginalized, looking to find ever more ways to understand the variety of the human experience and, in so doing, inform our own. The greatest art in all media comes first from the marginalized, from the oppressed. Art made from pain or in response to injustice has fueled cultural expression on these shores since the first slaves survived the horrific Middle Passage only to land in perpetual servitude. Indeed, most if not all American music can be traced to the earliest spirituals whose Christian themes of liberation were combined with African rhythms and scales and gave birth to the rise of our uniquely American expressions of blues and jazz and gospel and rock and roll. How lonely, how vacant would our world seem if we only listened to music inspired by the white European culture, imperial music for the imperialists, or put another way, how much more complete, how much more whole are we as a people having engaged with the marginalized, especially we Unitarian Universalists, by working in civil rights, women's rights, environmental justice, expressly with and among those folks most affected by injustice. When we engaged the anti-slavery movement two centuries ago, we gained not only the support and appreciation of many leaders of color, such as Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, but also deeper knowledge of ourselves as a people of faith committed to increasing justice and combating oppression wherever it occurs. When we engaged in the suffrage movement, we gain not only the dedication and involvement of powerful, articulate women like Dorothea Dix and Margaret Fuller, but also were forced to struggle with the role of women in our churches, eventually becoming the first Western denominations to ordain and call women ministers, such as our own Reverend Dr. Florence Buck, who served here from 1901 to 1910. When one of our Unitarian Universalist Association ministers came out as gay, we embraced the gay rights movement by affirming the place of gays and lesbians in our churches and our pulpits. Seven of our nine ministers in the modern era of Bradford UU 
have been openly gay, and this has informed and empowered our ministry in ways unthinkable had our faith not been so embracing and engaging. When our country and our world began to attack our muscling siblings, we here at Bradford came out in support and let both our Islamic community and the community of Kenosha know in no uncertain terms that we stand for religious freedom and the peaceful expression of faith and in so doing began forming relationships, actual relationships with our Muslim neighbors. The list goes on and on. But please understand this, that each time we as Unitarian Universalists as a movement and each time we at Bradford UU engage a different population, we become more connected, more knowledgeable, and indeed more whole. In the last couple of generations, a new marginalized identity has become to be recognized. That is of transgender and non-gender binary folks who struggle with the difference between their perceived physical gender and their personal identity. Now this population has always existed. This phenomena is not new or unique only to the millennial generation, but it has only been very recently that our society has gotten to a place where an exploration of this identity has even been possible. Much like an old friend of my family's who claimed emphatically that there were no gays in World War II. What we didn't talk about, what we didn't acknowledge as even possible was simply dismissed. Forget the fact that there were countless homosexual men and women who served our military and fought valiantly against Nazism and fascism, and presumably folks with such identities on every side of every military conflict ever endured. But in Western culture, where something as prevalent and basic as homosexuality had been so effectively suppressed as to be simply denied, it is sad but not particularly surprising that it has taken this long for us to begin to question the gender binary as we've been taught for generations. When Europeans first encountered the indigenous peoples of the Americas, those who hadn't been decimated by European-introduced pandemics and devastating warfare, that is, the Europeans were aghast at the prevalence of multiple genders in many of the societal systems. Most, if not all, American Indian traditions included at least three genders, male and female and the so-called two-spirit identity held by those that we might consider gender-fluid, transgender, or non-binary. And there are at least four different documented accounts of more gender definitions than simply these three. Now, unfortunately, very few original records remain due to the extent to which colonizers tried to eradicate the native cultures. But there remain at least a few first-person accounts we can draw upon for insight. In the Acoma Pueblo culture centered around what is now New Mexico, for example, there were a group called the Coquina. This is a specific gender identity for biological men who lived within the community as women. They would marry men, they would participate in women's rituals, act as midwives, and attend the essential and women-only craft of pottery. All indications are that the Coquina were respected and valued members of the Acoma community. 
But we contemporary Americans are indeed still trying to catch up to the world's wisdom we've lost through imperialism and conquest and things like the gender continuum and multiple gender theories are just now coming to the front of our national consciousness. And our hesitance as a culture to address this identity has only increased the immediacy and danger to our non-gender binary folks. Trans and non-gender binary teenagers who are not supported at home and in public are almost always affected by anxiety and depression far beyond the national averages for their cisgender peers. Suicide rates among teens in general are rising, but for non-gender conforming and trans teens, these numbers are off the charts. We are literally losing our children for sake of their hiding who they really are. But conversely, the good news is, according to a 2016 pub study published in the American Academy of Pediatrics, trans kids who are affirmed and supported at home and in society are no more likely to suffer anxiety, depression, or suicidal feelings than any other teenager. I'm going to say that again. Trans kids who are affirmed and supported in their identity at home and in public are no more likely to suffer anxiety, depression, or suicidal feelings than any other teenager. And what's so amazing is this affirmation and support is not very difficult. Simply calling someone by the name of their choosing and using the preferred pronouns for each individual makes a marked difference in how that individual feels about themselves. And it is, of course, an inherent good, a sacred duty, in fact, to help all our people feel better about themselves and the identities they hold. But again, it is as much about what we learn and how we grow as it is simply caring for others. Now, last week, we lifted up a portion of a spectacular piece written by Reverend David Bumbaugh in which he describes a contemporary Unitarian Universalist cosmology. This is the piece, if you remember, that includes the line, we believe that the universe outside of us and the universe within us is one universe. But he goes on to say, we believe that those least like us, those located on the margins have important contributions to make to the rest of the community of life and that in some curious way, we are all located on the margins. Reverend Bumbaugh is reiterating this universalist truth that if we are to become our best selves, if we are to move towards justice for the community of life, we must first engage all people, especially those least centered in our current societal power structure. Our own salvation, indeed the salvation of the planet, is indelibly tied to the salvation of the othered, the salvation of the marginalized, the salvation of those who have no voice, the salvation of all of us. Only through engagement, only through listening, learning, and working with others do we come to know ourselves, come to know each other, and come to feel once again connected and once again 
whole. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.